tonight. And it's been a joy to spend a couple of days here um, in uh, your community and here at your church. And I love your pastor, his family. You are led by a stellar leader, and I'm so grateful for him. And uh, of course, it's good to see Bishop and uh, his dear wife and all of you wonderful saints of God, thank you for being faithful to the house of God. Uh, go ahead and be seated. Um, Thanksgiving in Canada is earlier than Thanksgiving in the U.S. because we're a little further north than you folks are, even Wisconsin. And um, so we have uh, a shorter growing season. So our Thanksgiving is uh, the second Monday in October. And you folks celebrate nearer to the end of November, so we're about five or six weeks apart. Uh, but it's a wonderful celebration uh, for you, and I know how important and meaningful it is to you. And uh, so this has nothing to do with the message, but it has a whole lot to do with being thankful. Um, I'm so very grateful for the Lord. I don't know if you've ever thought about all the blessings that you have just because you live in America. Um, if you have an education, a billion people on this planet do not. They can't read or sign their names. 75 million kids will never get to attend school. If you've got a place to live, a billion people on earth don't have that privilege. They live in slums or boxes or mud huts, and many of them are children. If you've got enough food to eat, a billion people on this planet do not. One-third of children in developing countries are starving, and 22,000 of them died today. If you've got clean water, a billion people on earth do not have that. Millions of people spend hours every day of the week just trying to collect enough water to survive. If you've got electricity, 1.6 billion people don't. And because of unreliable infrastructure, 2 billion people on this planet have no light whatsoever at night. If you've got a stove, 2.5 billion people don't. Half of India, Africa, and China cook over fires. And a, half, a million and a half people die every year of inhaling indoor smoke from those cooking fires. If you've got a toilet, 2.6 billion people don't. Lack of proper sanitation spreads disease and kills 2 million people a year. And if you've got enough income, 6.5 billion people don't. Do you know that most of the people in our world live on the equivalent of less than $10 a day? And here we are, brothers and sisters. We are so abundantly blessed. We have so many things to be thankful for. And just a couple more. If you've got freedom to worship, six and a half billion people on our planet do not. They live under Islam or communism or some regime. And 400 Christians are killed every day of the year. And here we are in this beautiful building. We didn't have to worry when we came uh, tonight that somebody was going to arrest us or persecute us. And I got one last question. 
Anybody here got the Holy Ghost? Well, 7.2 billion people on this planet don't. Only 25% of the world's Christians are spirit-filled, about 600 million or so. You are abundantly blessed. When you celebrate Thanksgiving, I'm glad you're going to have turkey dinner. But we've got a whole lot to be thankful for. And I'm very thankful to have spent this couple of days with you and with your pastor and your team. And it's been a blessing to me. That's not what I want to talk to you about tonight. I'd like to um, talk to you about something a little different, something that's very precious to me and something I am very thankful for. The first apostolic in our family was my great uncle. His name was Leonard, and um, he was the first person to ever receive the Holy Ghost in our family. Um, it was a while ago. He was my great uncle. Um, he was just a young man when a preacher, a little short preacher named Edgar Grant, came to a little rural community in New Brunswick, Canada. Um, it's not even an incorporated village to this day. And it was even smaller back then, just really a collection of farms along a long, lonely country road. And Leonard lived in that community. And uh, his family, um, they went to uh, a church of a, a particular denomination. And it was quite a traditional kind of church. And, and his family was very influential in that church. Um, his, uh, his mother was the organist. Um, his um, father was the uh, choir director. Um, and this has been a while ago, they used to take a tuning fork and hit it on the heel of their boot to get the pitch for the choir to sing. So it's been a few years back. Um, and Leonard, uh, he had um, an uncle that had been educated at Harvard here in your country and had become a preacher in the New England states in their particular denomination. And his mom and dad really wanted him to uh, follow in his uncle's footsteps and yeah, but that wasn't for Leonard, and Leonard was just starting to get into a little bit of trouble as a, an older teenager and um, as a young man, and his family was concerned, and then they got even more concerned because this little short preacher named Edgar Grant, um, he rented a little community church called the Round Top Church uh, because of the circular roof structure, and um, he was preaching about something called the Holy Ghost. And uh, my great uncle Leonard, he got curious about that. And um, so he went to some of these meetings. Uh, in that little rural community in New Brunswick, Canada, they had also been having house prayer meetings in the afternoon. And Leonard shows up at this little tiny church that um, it wouldn't be a whole lot bigger than this platform, uh, just a little small building. And Leonard showed up that night and um, he met two of his buddies, Milford and Quincy, at the back door of that church. And uh, he could tell by the glow of God on their faces that they had received the baptism of the Holy Ghost that had been preached about all week. And it made him so mad. Um, he stomped into that church. He went all the way up to the platform and he knelt down behind an old pump organ um, and uh, he raised his head to heaven and he said, God, you forgot me. And God instantly filled my great uncle with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues. And that's where this wonderful experience started in our family. 
It was two months later because that was December the 28th, 1920, when he received the Holy Ghost. Um, that nobody had ever told them they shouldn't have revival meetings between Christmas and New Year's. They hadn't got that memo, so that's what they were doing. It was two months later, uh, New Brunswick winter, February 1921, and Leonard had completed his chores. And um, as he was wont to do, he was studying his Bible at the big old farmhouse kitchen table, and he saw it. Nobody had ever preached it to him. He just saw it he realized that the way he was baptized wasn't reflected in the scripture. He realized that every baptism he'd ever seen and his own baptism, they weren't done according to the scripture. And he would later tell his little wife, Ida, he said, I'm in this, but I'm in it wrong. And he saw it in the pages of scripture that everybody in the New Testament that was baptized was baptized not like him, but in the name of Jesus Christ. So my great uncle Leonard, he left the farmhouse that day. This is February of 1921. He went out to a little stream on the back 40 of the farm. He knelt down in a New Brunswick snowbank, broke the ice at the head of a little stream on the property, and stuck one hand under that icy water. And he lifted the other hand to heaven and he said, Lord, would you please take this as my baptism until you send somebody to baptize me in Jesus' name. Because that had not been preached in New Brunswick yet. God sent a preacher to baptize him in Jesus' name. He was a great Bible teacher from your country, uh, from Caldwell, Idaho. His name was John H. Deering. And Brother Deering had been preaching all up in the New England states, and he felt directed by God to go across into New Brunswick, Canada, and then he felt directed to go to this little tiny community that even to this day, I checked last year, it's still not even an incorporated village. It's just a long, lonely road with farms on it. And uh, John H. Deering, uh, he went into that community and he just went up and down that long, lonely road, knocking on farmhouse doors and telling them why he was there. And... Um, he finally knocked on the door of a family whose last name was Majors. And they said to him, you're not looking for us. You're looking for Leonard Parent. He's been talking about this crazy Jesus name nonsense for two months. And that's how the great Bible teacher, they called him the cowboy Bible teacher, John H. Deering from Caldwell, Idaho, came to baptize my great uncle Leonard in the only saving name of Jesus. God literally hand-delivered his truth to our family. Um, great Uncle Leonard, he would later go to the state of Michigan, and he started a church. And sometime in the 1930s, when he was there, he was still a young minister at that time. He was uh, going to a, a, a bigger church. Called, uh, the pastor's name was Bishop Kirby. And while uh, Uncle Leonard was a young minister there, uh, he was in the city of Royal Oak, Michigan. He was working a job. He was delivering milk. Uh, some of you might remember this. Just looking at you, you might remember this because I remember this. And some of you look a little older than me. Um, he delivered milk. Now, I don't remember this part. Horse and wagon. I don't remember that. But I do remember the big square glass milk bottles. And that's what he was doing. He was delivering milk. That was his job, supporting his family. He and Ida had like 10 kids. 
and uh, he's supporting his family. And in the city of Royal Oak, sometime in the 1930s, we don't remember the year, he slipped on an icy manhole cover. And when he came down, his entire body weight fell on one ankle and shattered that ankle. It was such a bad break that one of the bones protruded out from the skin. It was a terrible injury. And uh, great uncle Leonard, he uh, got up and he somehow threw his body over his horse and got the horse to take him home. And uh, his little wife, Ida, she helped him push that bone back together and wrap that ankle really tightly. It was already beginning to swell. And uh, then he went back and finished his day's work with his oldest son, Owen, because in those days you didn't skip work just because you broke your leg. Like, that's crazy. And, uh, and then he got home from work, and that night was church. And, of course, he got ready for church because you didn't stay home from church just because you broke your ankle. That's crazy. And so he got ready for church, and, um, and uh, as he was getting dressed, he put on his suit and his little tie, and, and uh, he put one shoe on. The other foot was swollen up like a football, and uh, so he took that second shoe and he stuffed it in his coat pocket and it stuck way out to here. And Ida said, um, Daddy, why are you doing that? You can't wear that shoe. Your foot is swollen to twice its normal size. You can't wear that shoe. He said, Ida, we're going to church. I'm going to need that shoe on the way home. <laughs> and so they went to church. It was foot washing service that night. No word of a lie. It was old-style foot washing where they used to get those big metal tubs of water and they drag them across the aisle and everybody used the same tub and the same water to wash their feet. And so Leonard's sitting on the front row and this other young minister, Brother Bishop Kirby's son, is going along and he's the one that's washing feet at that particular moment. And he comes to Leonard and Leonard starts unwrapping that bandage. And when young Brother Kirby sees this horrible gaping wound and all this dried blood. He says, Leonard, you can't put your foot in this water. Everybody's been washing their feet in this water um, and you'll get infection. And great uncle Leonard said, well, I guess this foot needs it the most. And, and he plunged that foot under that water and it came out totally whole. No open wound. No bone broken. It was an absolute miracle. And he wore the shoe home that night. And when he died when I was in high school, he lived into his 80s. And when he died, the last few years of his life, he could not remember which leg had been broken. He never had a limp. He never had arthritis in that place where the bone was broken so badly. God did an absolute miracle. Um, and I'm going somewhere. Uh, this is like bad home movies. I know. I'm sorry. Um, but you're trapped. So, and they gave me the microphone. So um, it, uh, that's my heritage. God literally hand-delivered truth to my family up in rural New Brunswick. And uh, Uncle Leonard would come back to his family. His uh, sister was my grandmother. And he would come back to visit his family every fall. He would pile those 10 kids in a great big station wagon and drive all the way from Pontiac, Michigan uh, to New Brunswick, Canada, and he would visit. And nobody in his immediate family, not his sisters, not their husbands, not the kids, nobody in his immediate family was interested in this precious, powerful apostolic truth except his nephew, 
who was my dad. And my dad would sit by the hour at that great big old farmhouse kitchen table and listen to his uncle Leonard explain the scripture to him. And uh, when I was born in 1962, my mom and dad were basically uh, newly married. They got married in um, early in 1961, and um, they were also basically new converts. And I'm so grateful that God gave us this powerful message. Um, I told you last night, the local church, your decision to be part of a local church like this is the most uh, important spiritual decision you could ever make outside of your personal relationship with the Lord. Um, I'm so grateful for pastors that preach truth to us and, and the chance to worship together with believers of like precious faith. And it's an honor to share uh, this time with you. And now I'll, I'll kind of try to accelerate the sermon so we don't take forever because that's, that's not even an introduction. That's just talk. Um, but here's where it connects for me. I have on my uh, credenza at home in my office uh, my great uncle Leonard's Bible. It was the Bible he was using uh, right up until he died. And his family, the remaining children who are all many years older than me, uh, they would be my uh, second, third cousins. And, uh, they voted and they decided they were going to give me their dad's Bible, the one he was using up until he died. Uh, great uncle Leonard used many Bibles during his ministry and um, he uh, would give so many away. And he would write in them and underline things and write important things in the front. And then he would give them to young ministers. And I've got the last one that he did that with. And uh, he was using it right up until he died. And he would write principles for young ministers in the front of his Bible. And he always wrote this one. I've actually had people in my travels tell me, your great uncle Leonard gave me a Bible. And he wrote the same thing in my Bible that I have that he wrote in your Bible that you told me about. And in the front, he wrote this statement. He always wrote this statement. When in danger, plead the blood. He taught that to young ministers. When you get in trouble, when you get in danger, when the enemy's pressing in on you, you plead the blood. Pleading the blood is a scriptural, spiritual concept that we access in prayer and the elders of the apostolic church taught that to us. And I would say to you, dear people tonight, we can't lose that. We can't lose the ability to do that or the understanding of it. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about for a few moments tonight. And I want to take you back to the opening chapters of the Word of God, because here's why. Nothing is in your Bible by accident. Nothing is there just incidentally. It's all there for a reason. And so when we begin to read through the opening chapters of the Word of God, uh, after the creation story, we begin to read about the first family. If you think your family is dysfunctional, you don't hold a candle to these people. Their family was really dysfunctional. And we're told that uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and, and she conceived, she, she had a son, and they called his name Cain. And Cain was the first son of, of Adam. And then she had another boy, and they called his name Abel, and uh, that was the second son of Adam. And, and so Cain and Abel, the Bible gets very specific, and there's no detail here by accident. The Bible specifically tells us 
that Cain, the first son of Adam, he was a tiller of the ground. So he worked over here in the farm and he knew what it was to be a farmer. He would plant seed and he would hope for rain and he would till the ground and he would do all of that stuff. And then if he knew if he got the seed in the ground and the conditions were right, he would have a harvest. That was Cain's life. He was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. But the second son of Adam, his name was Abel. And the Bible, again, is very specific. It tells us that Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. So he didn't work over there in the farm, in the fields. He worked here uh, in the sheepfold, tending sheep. And that was Abel's uh, occupation. And that was kind of his thing. And now we come to a, a story in the Word of God that you'd be familiar with. God asked those boys for an offering. We don't have to guess what kind of offering God asked for because the Bible tells us the life of the flesh is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement for sin. Uh, and it talks all about blood sacrifices. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. And so we don't have to wonder what kind of sacrifice God was asking for. It was an atoning sacrifice. So Abel goes and gets one of his finest sheep and he sacrifices that animal and he offers God the offering that God has requested and God is pleased. But Cain, he decides, like so many people today, uh, I'm not going to give God what he asked for. I'm going to put together my best version of what I think should please God. So many people do that today. So Cain doesn't offer God a sacrifice of blood like God requested. He just gets vegetables from his farm and he brings an offering of the fruit of his field to God. And God's not pleased with that because it's not an atoning offering. It's just kind of man's idea of what God should be pleased with. And so now we have this really awkward situation where Cain is angry with God and God is angry with Cain and it's not good. And, and they have a conversation. God says to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? And, and Cain, um, if you just do well, if you just obey, if you just submit, I'd be pleased and you'd be fine. You'd be accepted. But Cain, what you don't understand is when you rebel and when you don't obey, sin is lying at the door. Literally, sin is crouching at the door of your life, ready to pounce on you. And you better be careful, Cain. Now, you would think that after God warned Cain like that, he would straighten up, but he didn't. Here's what we read next, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass. Remember, there's nothing accidentally in your Bible. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. He killed him. And then the Lord shows up and he says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he looks back in the face of God and Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Can I just tell you, always beware of somebody that answers a question with a question. They're usually trying to hide something. And God says, Cain, what have you done? You don't understand, Cain. The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And now, Cain, you're cursed from the earth because it opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And you can go back to your little farm, Cain, and you can do everything you used to do. But now when you till the ground, it will not henceforth yield unto you its strength. You're going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. You're going to have to leave your farm. I've, I've made sure that that farm will not produce good crops from here on out. 
This is amazing to me. This is one of the early stories in the Word of God, and it paints this powerful picture. We're told these two brothers over here in the field, in the farm, is Cain, and he's the first son of Adam, and he's the tiller of the ground. And we are told, it's, it's right there in your Bible, we just read it. We're told that there came a day when Abel, the second son of Adam, left his territory in the sheepfold, and Abel went to the territory, the farm, the field, of Cain, the first son of Adam. And while Abel, the second son of Adam, was in the territory of Cain, the first son of Adam, Cain lifted up wicked hands and killed his brother and buried his body in the ground of the field. And he thought that's the end of it. But all of a sudden, something shifted. And up in heaven, God said, wait a minute. I can hear Abel's innocent blood crying out from the ground. And I'm going to get justice, Cain. Now, that's kind of a weird story. That's the first murder in the Bible. But notice this. Abel was killed not in the sheepfold. He was killed in the field. He came on Cain's territory and was killed by his brother. The second son of Adam was killed by the first son of Adam. Do you remember that in Scripture, humanity is referred to as the first Adam and Jesus is referred to as the second Adam? Do you understand what the picture is here? There came a day when Jesus, the second Adam, left heaven, angels singing, streets of gold, a powerful, beautiful throne, angels around it. There came a day when Jesus, the second Adam, left his territory and he came all the way to earth to our territory. And while Jesus, the second Adam, was here on earth in our territory, humanity, the first Adam, we lifted up wicked hands and we killed him. We nailed him to a cross and walked away and thought, well, there, that's the end of that. But what sinners didn't know, what the Pharisees didn't know, what the religious leaders didn't know, is when his blood, just like Abel's blood, trickled out of his body into the field, into the soil, when Jesus' blood started flowing down that old rugged cross and his blood touched the sin-cursed soil of our planet, let me tell you, something shifted up in heaven and all of a sudden heaven said, wait a minute, something just changed. I can hear the blood speaking. Abel's voice, Abel's blood had a voice. Can I tell you, Jesus' blood has a voice. And his blood is still speaking for his people. So it's a beautiful picture. It's powerful. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul wrote, What the law could not do, because the law was weak through the flesh, you couldn't keep enough rules to merit salvation. But God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus shut down the power of sin for those that would give their lives to Him. Isaiah the prophet spoke 600 years before Jesus was crucified. Isaiah had never seen a crucifixion. Crucifixion had not been invented as a form of execution yet. But 600 years in prophecy, here's what Isaiah saw. 
53 and 3. He is despised and rejected of men. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then the prophet says, but... It wasn't just a martyr or a murder victim, but there was a purpose behind it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And then the old prophet gets so anointed, he jumps from the past tense. He was wounded. He was bruised. Our peace was upon him. He jumps from the past tense into the present and he says, and with his stripes we are healed. Can I tell you the blood of Jesus is so powerful that healing's in it and deliverance is in it and the payment for your peace and your joy and your victory is in it. So this little story of these two dysfunctional brothers it's not just a story, it's a picture. When, when uh, Abel went to Cain's territory and Cain killed him and buried his body in the ground, the moment that Abel's innocent blood trickled out of his body and touched the soil of Cain's field, God said, I can hear that blood talking, Cain. You're not allowed to go back to your field and just carry on business as usual because your brother's innocent blood is crying out to me. Now, with my human ear, I can't hear blood. It's a good thing. If you could hear blood, you'd be kind of distracted right now. But if you go to your physician, they can take an instrument called a stethoscope, and they can put it here, or they can put it here, and they can hear your heartbeat or your pulse. And you know what that is? That's the sound of your blood pumping through your body. Well, God has ears better than your physician and his stethoscope. God said, I can hear the blood, and the blood has a voice. And the blood of Jesus has a strong voice that still, to this day, speaks on behalf of his church. So, and it's just coming at you very simple. Cain, he's the first son. He's like the first Adam who was sinful. Abel is the second son. He's like Jesus, the second Adam, who shed his blood. Jesus' blood wasn't just innocent blood. It was sinless blood. It was divine blood. It was powerful blood. You say, I think, Pastor Raymond, you might be stretching this point a little bit. I don't think so. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45. And so it is written... The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So the Bible says right there in that verse that the first Adam, humanity, was made a living soul. You and I, we are living souls. Your soul, that's the ancient word that would be the modern equivalent to our word mind. And in your soul or in your mind dwells everything that makes you you. You are a living soul. You have a will. You have a personality. You have intellect and memory. You have uh, all kinds of things that make you you. We are a living soul. But that last Adam, Jesus, he was made something extra. He was not just a living soul. He was also a quickening spirit. That was God manifest in a body of flesh. Now that's bad news for us, to be honest. Because 
I'm just a living soul. You're just a living soul. Jesus is a quickening spirit. And so we are forever divided from Jesus. We can never be with him or like him. We can never go to his heaven because he's a quickening spirit and we're just living souls. But I seem to remember a scripture that Paul wrote that said, if that spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if it ever dwells in you, if it ever gets in you, if it ever lives in you, it will quicken your mortal body by his spirit that dwells in you. So we've got hope because of the gospel that the spirit of Jesus can live in us. That's called the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And when it does, we now are no longer just living souls. We have the quickening spirit of God in us. Paul continues in verse 47. He said, the first man, first Adam, he's of the earth and he's earthy. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're kind of earthy sometimes. Please don't enjoy that too much. If that's your spouse, you'll pay for it later. The second man, he's different than us. He's the Lord from heaven. There's an old song we used to sing in the church when I was coming up. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. I am just earthy. I can't help myself. No matter how hard I try, I look pretty impressive sometimes. I grit my teeth and I try to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, but I always fall flat on my face. But the second Adam, he's the Lord from heaven. He can reach down and he can lift me up. He can reach down and he can change my life and Changed my heart. Now, years ago now, I, I don't remember when this was, uh, I did a series at home on the book of Romans, and we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, Romans is a powerful and beautiful epistle written by Paul. And uh, I think the church probably thought at some point they were in the middle of the Great Tribulation because I didn't care if we ever finished Romans. I was having such a good time. But uh, anyway, in the second half of Romans chapter 5, Paul goes into this Oh my goodness, it's so powerful. He starts talking about the two Adams. The first Adam, humanity. The second Adam, Jesus. And it's amazing. Here's what he says, Romans 5 and 12. Wherefore, as by one man, somebody say, that's us. That's Adam, that's humanity. As by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Now, Paul just painted a picture there. This is a tragic chain reaction. Adam sins, and sin enters the human family, and it passes from Adam to his descendant to their descendant, and on down right up until today. Paul just painted this picture, that Adam is at the head of the line of humanity, and because he failed, it became everybody's failure. Because he sinned, it became everybody's sin. And sin, Paul just said, death has passed upon all men, and now the result is that all are guilty of sin, and it's all because of Adam and his sin. Adam's at the head of this long line of humanity as far as you can see into the distance and we're way back here at the end of the line and we are tainted by sin because Adam sinned. And I just want to stand here on behalf of all the Americans in this great democracy and say that's not fair. We didn't vote for Adam. We're a democracy. We vote on everything. You folks are preparing for an election right now, and it's not for months. You're all just kind of getting your blood pressure high about it. 
This is a terrible, tragic chain reaction. Sin enters the world through Adam. Death enters the world through sin. And then both sin and death are passed on to all of us, every member of the human race. See, Paul isn't just saying we're like Adam. No, he's saying we were in Adam. Adam was put in the Garden of Eden by God as our legal representative. Meaning that just like you have representatives that represent you in government, but you voted for them. I didn't vote for Adam. You didn't vote for Adam. But God put him as a legal representative, and here's how it works. If Adam fails, we all fail. If Adam sins, we all sin. If Adam messes up, we all mess up. That's God's system. Adam stood in our place as our legal representative. And that does not feel fair to the Western democratic mind because we didn't elect Adam to be our representative. But God had created Adam for precisely that reason. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, if I'd have been in the Garden of Eden, we wouldn't be in this mess. You know what? If some of you had been in the Garden of Eden, we might be in an even bigger mess. I have no idea. But Adam was our legal representative. And we don't like God's system because it's not fair. I didn't get my vote. I didn't vote for Adam. Who put Adam in my place? And that, that's not fair. You might like God's system better if you realize something. That if one man's sin could plunge the whole human family into sin, if there ever could come a second Adam, a different Adam, if there ever could come a sinless Adam, if it's possible for one man's sin to plunge us all into sin, then if there ever could be a second Adam who never sinned, then it's possible that his righteousness could become our righteousness and his sinlessness could become our sinlessness. If one Adam can get us all into trouble, then another sinless, perfect Adam can get us all out of trouble with God. If the first, sin, if the first Adam's disobedience became our disobedience in God's sight, if there's a perfect second Adam, his obedience can become our obedience. That's exactly why Jesus came, and that's exactly what Paul is trying to say. Look at this, Romans 5 and 15. But not as the offense, so is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. Now here's how it works, brothers and sisters. Adam was disobedient, but Jesus was obedient. Adam broke the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law. Adam brought offense, but Jesus brought grace. Adam brought bondage, but Jesus brought freedom. Adam brought death, but Jesus brought life. Adam brought condemnation. Jesus brought us justification. The first Adam, he cursed us, but this second Adam, he has blessed us. The first Adam hurt us, but the second Adam has healed us. The first Adam put us out, but the second Adam, he welcomes us in. The first Adam, he put us down, but the second Adam lifts us up. The first Adam put us on the road to hell, but the second Adam has put us on the road to heaven. That's how it works. If one man's disobedience could become my disobedience, then Jesus' obedience could become my obedience. I'm not standing here because I'm such a great guy. That's not why pastor invited me. 
I'm not standing here because I'm so good. I'm standing here because Jesus is so good. I'm not here with you because I'm so holy. I'm here because Jesus is so holy. I'm not here because I'm so righteous. I'm here because my Jesus is so righteous. Now, I have a bone to pick with you Christian people. I really do. Um, and, and you know what? You, you do this with precious, impressionable little children in Sunday school. I don't know why you do this. It really bugs me. For years, some of you that teach our precious, impressionable children, we have given the apple bad press for years. We send precious little kids home with a Sunday school paper, badly colored, by the way, and it's got Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden, clothed in, 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 in garments made out of skins, and they're crying and they're weeping, and God's angel standing behind them with a flaming sword, and Eve is holding in her hand a half-eaten apple. That's the wrong story. That's Snow White. That's not Adam and Eve. <laughs> Wrong story. Wrong book. Who told you that was an apple? Bible doesn't say that was an apple. We've given that poor apple bad press for years and years and years and just kind of messed up a bunch of kids that now believe that. Think, think about this. When Adam and Eve sinned, and suddenly they realize that they are naked and shamed and guilty in God's sight. When they need to cover their nakedness, what do they reach for? What kind of leaves? Fig leaves. It wasn't an apple. It was a fig. It wasn't an apple tree. It was a fig tree. If you want to get mad, get mad at Fig Newtons or something. Don't get mad at apples. It wasn't an apple. And the Jewish people, they know this. You can read in some of the ancient Jewish literature, uh, like the Midrash, it refers several times, quote, to the fig leaf that brought remorse to the world. It was a fig tree that they ate from. And the Jewish people, uh, they understand that. They've got ancient writings and, and whatever. And that helps me to understand that. Because there's this little story in the Gospels that I never understood. It just always bugged me. Um, it's the last week of Jesus' earthly life, and Jesus is staying in Bethany with his disciples, and every day they're going into Jerusalem because it's the week of Passover. None of them realize that Jesus is going to give his life at the end of that week. Every, week they, every day they go into Jerusalem, and they do the things. This is the week that Jesus cleanses the temple, and they're not happy. And, and one day, one morning, as they're going from Bethany, where they're staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, speaking of dysfunctional families, uh, they're staying there, and one morning they're going into Jerusalem, and Jesus sees this little innocent fig tree standing by the side of the road. And he walks over to it, and he rustles around in the branches, and there's no figs there to eat, and he backs up a couple of paces and said, you're cursed. And they keep on going. And the next morning, as they go by again, same road, same little innocent fig tree, it's all shriveled up right to the roots. And the disciples say, Jesus, the fig tree you curse is all shriveled up. That has always bugged me. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. Mark's account of that story specifically says 
The time of figs was not yet. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He created that poor little fig tree for some months of the year to bear figs and other months not to bear figs. And Mark says the time of figs was not yet. Jesus goes over to this tree that he, as God, created. It's not the time of figs. Jesus rustles around in the branches and there's no figs and he curses it. It's like that poor little fig tree. It didn't do anything except just do what God had created it to do. So what gives? I think I know the answer. As Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, knowing full well that this is the week he will give his life to reverse the curse of sin, he sees by the side of the road the same kind of tree that got Adam and Eve into trouble with God in the beginning. And so the first Adam, he walks over to the tree with his wife Eve and they eat of the tree. The second Adam, it's a pitcher. He walks over to the tree and there's no figs to eat. The second Adam did not partake of the figs. He did not partake of sin. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. So it's kind of like a little drama. Jesus is showing them the second Adam doesn't eat of the fig tree. And in fact, he curses the fig tree. And then he goes to Calvary and he dies on a tree. And he reverses the curse that Adam and Eve... My goodness. So, yeah. So stop passing out those pictures with apples. Okay, so, so let's carry on. So that's a digression. Um, the first Adam eats of the fruit of the tree. He brings death. The second Adam eats of the, does not eat of the, the, the tree. In fact, he curses the source of death. Because when the God-man speaks, even the curse is cursed in your life. So Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and verse uh, 15, already quoted it. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. Jesus came to this earth. He robed himself in flesh so he could feel what you and I feel. He felt sadness. He felt loneliness. He, he had enemies. He had people that made false accusations about him. He felt pain and sorrow and loss. He went through everything that we did. He was in all points tempted like as we are. But here's the point. Yet without sin. So here's what Paul's trying to get at. And I'm, I'm moving as quick as I can and we'll be through uh, by midnight for sure. So here we go. Um, before you get saved, before you get saved, all that is true of the first Adam is true of you. Now, I know what you're thinking. I would never do that. You have no idea what you might have done if you had continued in sin for a few months or years longer. We say it once in a while, there but for the grace of God go I. You have no idea what you would be capable of in your sinful nature. I know you think you're a good person. I know I think I'm a good person. But we have no idea what our flesh would be capable of if God just left us to our own devices. Thank God for His grace and His mercy and His saving power. Because before I got saved, everything that Adam could have possibly done, I could have possibly done. Everything that was true of Adam was true of me. But here's the good news. 
I changed lines. I'm no longer in the line behind the first Adam. I'm now in the line behind the second perfect sinless Adam. I'm part of his family. So just like over here, everything that was true of the first Adam was true of me when I was in that line. Now everything that is true of Jesus is true of me. He's holy. I get to be called holy. He's righteous. I get to be called righteous. He's without sin. I get to be called in the sight of God without sin. When he looks at me, he does not see my guilt and he does not see my failures. He looks at me through the shed blood of the cross of Calvary and I'm glad to announce to you that the blood of Jesus still speaks on behalf of the church tonight. So when you get in danger and when you get in trouble and when the enemy's all around you on every side and harassing your mind, don't you just collapse in a pile of despair. You stand your ground. You square your shoulders and say, Devil, the blood of Jesus was shed for me. I plead the blood against you. You're not allowed to attack me. You're not allowed to take me down. I plead the blood against you. Oh, I wish somebody to just worship God for a second. Wow. I love it. Thank God for the blood. Oh. Whew. My goodness. Now, the Apostle Paul, don't despair. We're still in Romans 5. Um, CCC, they were in Romans for like weeks, so you're okay. You've only been in Romans for a few minutes here. Romans 5, verse 20. Paul loves this phrase much more. He loves it. He uses it several times. Romans 5, 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now, I know there's people today that they get really mad about the law of God. They don't like all those rules and all those commandments. You want to thank God every day for the law of God. Because we would not know how much trouble we were in. We would not know what sin was. We would not know that we were in trouble and couldn't go to heaven if it had not been for the law of God that was given to us. The law tells me I'm guilty. The law tells me I'm a sinner. So I thank God for the law. The law entered. Why? So the offense might abound. So we'd know just how much trouble we were in. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The grace of God is more powerful than sin every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. The grace of God is stronger than sin. Hmm. So just to kind of recap and finish up here. When Abel died in Cain's field and his blood seeped out of his body, innocent blood, not sinless blood, not divine blood, but innocent blood. When his blood seeped out of his body and touched the soil of Cain's field, something shifted in heaven and it was like his blood became his defense attorney pleading his case before God. This was an innocent man that died in heaven, could hear his blood talking and said, we're going to get justice and Cain will not get away uh, without penalty. God said, I hear that blood talking and I'll get justice. You know, when the devil arranged the crucifixion of Jesus, he thought he was going to stamp out the Nazarene. He thought he was going to mess up the gospel, I guess. 
God blinded his eyes. The devil's not near as smart as he pretends to be. The Bible tells me in Paul's writing, if the princes of this world had known what God was doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the devil had had any idea what would happen as a result of Calvary, he wouldn't have gone near Jesus with a 25-foot pole. But he didn't know. He was blind. Now, people say things that they mean well, but they're wrong. People say, you know, I thank God for the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus because his life saves me. No, it doesn't. In fact, his life, not only does it not save you, it actually condemns you. You're sinful, he's sinless. You're imperfect, he's perfect. The life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, it condemns us because it shows us how low we are compared to the standard of God. So it's not his life that saves me. Let me tell you what saves me. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's what saves me. That's the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I thank God for his life, but his life just condemns me. I could never measure up to the perfect life of Jesus. But he didn't come so he could brag about his perfect life. He came so he could go to an old rugged cross, and he could die, and he could be buried, and he could rise again the third day. And so I thank God for that. Because as long as his blood, like Abel's blood, as long as Abel's blood was in his body. It didn't do anything with heaven. It was when his blood seeped out of his body that all of a sudden something changed. When Jesus walked on this earth for 33 and a half years and his blood was in his body, it didn't have any impact on me. But when his blood was shed, whoo, and it came streaming down that old rugged cross. The instant his sinless, divine, powerful blood touched the sin-cursed soil of this planet, something changed. I'm not saved by the life of Jesus, but I have been saved by the death and the burial and the resurrected life of Jesus. It's amazing. Um, it's so beautiful. Um, Peter, the day of Pentecost preacher, he later wrote another book. I guess he didn't get to preach long enough the first time, so he wrote some more. 1 Peter chapter 1, here's what he said. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. Peter said, you couldn't buy your way into the kingdom of God. It wasn't from your vain conversation. It wasn't received by tradition from your fathers. I know there's lots of traditional kinds of Christianity, but I didn't get this by tradition. Here's how you were redeemed. It was with the precious blood of Christ. He was as of, a lamb, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Later, the writer of Hebrews would write this. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, not the Old Testament sacrifices, but it was by his own blood that he entered in once into the holy place and he obtained eternal redemption for us. You know how it worked in the Old Testament. The priests had to go in time after time after time after time. Endless sacrifices, rivers of bloodshed over thousands of years. But Jesus only had to go in once. One sacrifice because it was a perfect sacrifice. It did what nothing else could do. And when Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, it's the last time he'll ever see them, and he tells them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, 
the church, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. And look at this, it's beautiful. And elders, pastors, preachers, feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Brothers and sisters, there are many beautiful things on this planet, but you are part of the only thing that heaven ever had to buy. If God wanted a mountain, he spoke it into existence. If he wanted a river, he spoke it into existence. But this church cost him everything. It cost heaven the sinless blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's my point for you tonight. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Watch this. God testifying of his gifts, and by it, by that shed blood, by it he being dead yet speaketh. Abel's blood was still speaking for him. Abel was killed at the beginning of the Old Testament. That's like 4,000 years before the writer of Hebrews ever picks up his parchment and his quill to write. 4,000 years later, the writer of Hebrews says, Abel's innocent blood is still speaking. He's still talking. His blood is still speaking. And he wasn't Jesus. He was just Abel. He wasn't sinless. He was just innocent. And 4,000 years later, it's such a powerful principle that the innocent blood of Abel is still being heard by heaven. But watch this in Hebrews 12. We have come to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, watch this, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel's innocent blood was still talking 4,000 years after he gave his life. It's only been 2,000 years since Jesus gave his life, and his blood wasn't just innocent human blood. His blood, Paul described it as the blood of God, the, the church that God has purchased with his own blood. It was sinless blood. It was divine blood. It was powerful blood. Can I tell you that the blood of Jesus has a much louder voice than the innocent blood of Abel? And if Abel's blood could still be talking loud in heaven's ears 4,000 years later, how loud do you think the blood of Jesus is speaking on behalf of his people. So when you get in danger and when you get in trouble and when you've got the enemy giving you grief, you need to learn to plead the blood. I'm not living this in my own strength. I live like I live because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that has covered my sins and covers my life. And the blood doesn't just forgive my sins. That's the big thing it does. That's the most important thing it does. But His blood heals me. And with His stripes, we are healed. His blood delivers me. His blood covers me. His blood is my defense attorney. His blood still speaks for me. <laughs> so when judgment said, you should have been destroyed... The blood got in between you and judgment and said, no, you can't touch this one. This is mine now. When your enemies tried to wipe you out, when trials and temptation came upon you from every side, the blood of Jesus got between you and all of that and said, you can't touch them. I'm defending this one. And for some of us, this isn't just some little abstract lesson for me. Because for some of us, if the blood hadn't spoken for us, we wouldn't be here tonight.
I know you think you've been part of this church long enough, you've forgotten some of the old memories. But for some of us, we wouldn't even be here if it hadn't been for the blood of Jesus. <laughs> My goodness. He wrote it when he was a teenager. Um, he was dyslexic, so he really had struggles with words. But God had given him the gift of playing the piano in his father's church. And uh, he had a twin sister, and th they were both musical. But he really struggled uh, with dyslexia. And so he had to almost, when he would write something down, almost write it in cartoonish form or hieroglyphic form, little pictures and images. And he wrote this song, and he looked it over after he wrote it, and he thought it was no good. So he wadded it up, and he threw it in the trash. And his twin sister, Sandra, went and got it out of the trash. And she said to her twin brother, Andre, she said, that's a good song, Andre Crouch. Don't you throw that in the trash. And that song says, the blood that Jesus shed for me. Way back on Calvary, that blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley. That blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. It's not just some little academic construct for me. If the blood hadn't spoken for me, and if the blood hadn't spoken for some of you, we wouldn't be here. Justice said some of us should have died a long time ago. But the blood got between some of you and the car wreck. The blood got between some of you and the hospital room. The blood got between some of you and a jail cell. The blood got between some of you and a terrible addiction. The blood got between some of us and the mortuary or the cemetery and we're still here by the grace of God and the name of Jesus and the power of the blood that he shed. <laughs> Whoa. I wish you'd take a time out and thank him. Huh. Wow. My goodness. Thank God for the blood. Two minutes. Go ahead and sit down. Two minutes. You remember Cain? He was a tiller of the ground. He knew what it was to plant seed in the ground, hope for good conditions, wait for the rain, till the ground, tend the farm. And he knew if he could just get that seed in the ground, in the earth, early enough and often enough, he'd have a harvest. It's the law of the harvest. Until Abel's blood entered the soil of his farm. And then God said, no Cain, no more. From now on, you can do everything you used to do. You can plant seed, you can till the ground, you can tend the crop, you can wait for rain, but it will not yield, give you its strength. It will not yield to you its strength. You can plant the same seed that you used to, but it won't have the same effect. <laughs> can I tell you that we're just made from the earth? And uh, the devil knew about some of you that if he could get the seeds of sin in your life early enough and often enough, all he'd have to do is sit around and wait for his harvest. The devil, that's why some of you, uh, the devil attacked you when you were just a child. The devil came at you when you were in grade school or high school or university. 
He sent just the right people to try to pull you into sin and pull you into all kinds of things that dishonored yourself and dishonored God. And he tried to get those seeds of sin in your life early enough and often enough. And the devil has just been sitting around for years waiting. He knew if he could get that abuse in your life, he knew if he could get that, that bad friend, that bad influence in your life, he knew if he could get that habit, that addiction in your life, all he'd have to do, if he could plant those seeds early enough and often enough, he'd just have to sit around and wait for his harvest. And when you were 29 or 33 or 41 or 58 or 63, he knew that if he just waited long enough, he'd get his harvest of sin in your life and he would destroy you. And he's been waiting. But what he didn't count on is there came a day, just like the ground of Cain's field opened its mouth to receive his brother's blood, there came a day when I opened my mouth and I said, Jesus, I need you. And the blood of Jesus entered this ground. Oh. <laughs> we're just made from the earth it entered this ground and because the blood has entered this ground and your ground the devil can try to attack all he wants the devil can try to sow the same kind of addiction and bondage the same kind of sin all of that mess he can try as much as he wants but devil because the blood has entered this ground it doesn't have the same effect anymore I'm a child of God and his blood defends me and his blood covers me and his blood speaks for me so you can try to sow all the junk in my life and attack me all you want but it doesn't work anymore devil because the blood has covered my life and so my great uncle Leonard he used to teach every young minister when you get in danger don't just stand there plead the blood I had somebody say to me one time I was talking about this and they said I don't like that plead the blood Sounds like you're begging, plead the blood, I plead the blood. What are you begging for? I said, it's not begging. Now, I thought in my head, it's not begging, you dummy, but I didn't say that. I just said, it's not begging. It's not pleading as in the sense of begging. Oh, my goodness. It's pleading as in the sense of a courtroom where you are the prisoner on the docket and that prosecuting attorney, the devil, he's got everything you've ever done wrong, everything you've ever done bad. He's got every sin you ever committed, every evil thought you ever had, and he is coming in for the kill and you are going away for a long time. But just at the last second, a defense attorney steps in and his name is the Lord Jesus. And he said, I've got a different document, Your Honor. I've got a document that is a legal pleading. And here's what the legal pleading says. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. So it's not pleading as in begging. It's pleading as I'm standing on the Word of God and His blood covers my life. Would you stand with me? I'm done. Thank you for your patience. Oh my goodness, what a great group of people you are. Um, would you lift up your hands before we do anything else? And would you just begin to worship Him? Just begin to praise Him. We'll sing in a little while, but we're not going to tax the music team right now. I just want to hear your voices lifted in prayer and worship and praise. I'd like you to thank God for everything that He's done for you, every price that He paid for you. His blood is so precious and so powerful. 
Erebo shama mandola karabasa. Leto labasiende rabasa. Taraboko tara. Jesus, I thank you for the blood. It cleanses me. It forgives me. It strengthens me. It lifts me. It delivers me. It heals my body. It heals my mind. Your blood is so powerful. It gives me strength every day. Uh, wow. I don't care how much the devil attacks. I don't care how tough the diagnosis is. His blood speaks on your behalf. His blood is still talking for the church of the living God. Would you step out of where you're standing right now? Let's gather as family one more time on this beautiful Sunday. Would you just step into the altar area? We're just going to pray together. No big pressure, no big deal. But we are the people of God, and His blood has cleansed us. We're a different kind of people than we ever were before. And it's not because we're so good or we're so religious or we're so awesome. It's because of this shed blood of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are in this sanctuary, would you reach over, take somebody by the hand and lift that hand with yours right now like a choir of uplifted hands. And would you just begin to thank God for the blood that he shed. Thank God for the cross of Calvary. Thank God for his healing power. Thank God for his delivering power. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his miracle working power. Everything you need, it has been paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Divine healing works because the blood was shed. Miracles work because the blood was shed. Deliverance works because the blood was shed. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, I worship you, God. I love you, Jesus. I thank you for your blood. I thank you that it has delivered me and saved me and defended me time after time. I thank you that when I failed and fell flat on my face, your blood, it forgave me. It picked me up. It set me back on the right path. I thank you, Jesus, for your blood. I thank you, Jesus, for your blood. And I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight. Because I know in this world that we live in, so often their faith is under attack. So often their family is under attack. So often their mind is under attack. So often their spiritual life, their heart is under attack. But Jesus, tonight we plead the blood. We stand our ground and we say, Devil, you have no jurisdiction here. You have no power here. You have no authority here. I push you back. I plead the blood. The blood of Jesus covers my life. Would you pray for somebody beside yourself right now? Maybe it's your child or your sibling. Maybe it's somebody at home that's not here. And if they're here, and if you're near somebody, you can pray for them. But would you lift somebody's name up to the Lord right now and just pray that the blood of Jesus would do a great work in their life? They're going to sing, but I want you to lift up your voice and pray. We'll sing later. Let's pray while they sing something. Just keep praying. If somebody's near you, lay your hand on them and pray with them. The blood of Jesus is actively working, actively speaking for the people of God. Thank you.